the first subject that we're talking about tonight, which is just really one of the most important subjects on the spiritual path, is the whole question of good company. And what I was starting to say before I was, does somebody have a little piece of paper that I can use as a, as a bookmark, or can I borrow a bookmark? I actually left my own book at home. Brilliant move on my part. Um, uh, the... Um, the whole concept of satsang is really one of the most fundamental ideas on the spiritual path, and it's, it's a very subtle one, and it's surprising to me sometimes how unself-evident it is to people. And I think it really deserves a lot of attention for that reason. So Amaji starts out in the most interesting way. I, it's always so fascinating if you read a lot of Swami's writings or listen to him talk over time, to just watch the subtle way in which his mind works, and how so often he, he he'll write by inspiration. He doesn't write, he doesn't he doesn't write out his plots ahead of time. Sometimes he, on occasion, he will have an idea of what the chapters are going to be, but sometimes he actually says he just writes sentence to sentence. He doesn't have any idea beyond that. He writes just like he talks, just, um, or he'll just feel a certain flow and he'll follow it, and it'll reveal itself as he goes along. In this particular chapter, he starts out by talking about, um, speaking about ahimsa to an an Indian audience. And talking about ahimsa, um, as Gandhi taught it, is just being the exact articulation of the essence of the Indian attitude, which is the freedom to follow your own inspiration, but absolute respect for others also to follow theirs. You know, the, and that's sort of like what the Indian character is, is it's very self-directed. And that's why the Indian um, religious tradition is not like the Western one, where we organize and then get everybody in line and then make all these rules about how you're supposed to behave. Of course, as Master said, ignorance is 50-50 East and West, so you have fanatics on both sides of the uh, great divide. So it's not like people don't become narrow-minded and fanatical, but we're talking about the ideals here. And... The whole concept being that nothing is really going to be our own unless it arises from inside of us. And the whole idea of spiritual transformation or spiritual leadership or spiritual revelation is that it inspires people to rise to a higher level of consciousness. It doesn't coerce them and it doesn't define it. It simply gives them a vibration that they are inwardly uh, that they inwardly want to respond to. Um, Ananda itself, over all the years that I've been part of it, it's a little more clearly sort of systematized now. But in the early years, it was very not systematic. And, uh, well, I'm going to skip to a slightly different subject. Swami Kriyananda has often, often for many years, referred to the fact that when Master was alive and in charge of SRF, that it wasn't at all organized. And when he came and took over the monks in 1948, which was a long time later, um, he he put some systems in place. And and it was sort of commonly, uh, the the phrase was uh, bantied about in SRF, that Master wasn't a very good organizer. And, you know, there was lots of justification for that. He was more Indian than Western and all these different things. But much later in Swami's life, like in the 80s or maybe the 90s, he was writing something, and I don't recall what it was. Maybe it was a book about leadership. But he actually sort of uh, announced to us in his way 
that he had sort of always accepted that same fact that Master wasn't a very good organizer and he just dismissed it as being beneath him to organize and that it was something left for the disciples to do and Swami had always seen, you know, the interesting fact of him coming onto the scene and then actually putting some organization in place. But in retrospect, he realized that Master was a brilliant organizer. He said he was actually a brilliant organizer, but he, he organized everything entirely by magnetism which is that he just simply radiated an extremely clear and very powerful force that was, that was very well-directed and very coherent. And very coherent even in terms of, of everything that he wanted to have happen. But it was just all ma- a magnetic exchange, not a, an organizational, these are, your, these are your patterns, these are the rules that you follow kind of exchange. Now, the the glory of that is quite evident. Swamiji said also one of the reasons he never put any systems in place was that while, Ma- while Master was alive, he didn't want anything to interfere with anybody's direct disciple, uh, direct relationship with him. He didn't want any layers of authority. It was all held together by him. But part of the fact was that once he was off the planet um, and, and less directly available, it was necessary to put in more systems and more layers because without his force there to keep it all in order, essentially lesser systems were required because he could hold it all in that manner. It's very true and has been true through the years that Swami Kriyananda has succeeded in exactly the same way, that his physical presence, and especially when he was really involved in a lot that was happening, everything stayed on course and actually was held in in very good order, without any systems or rules, really, just because the power of his presence in the middle of it. And it wasn't merely, oh, that people could ask him and he would say what to do, because the majority of people in the context of Ananda over many years, I mean, people used to have more access to him than anybody does now, except those who are on his staff. But uh, it wasn't really that everybody got to ask him. It's just that there was a force field coming out from him. And that force field, and there still is, no less so, but it was, it was, it was more involved in the day-to-day running of things. It was just a force field coming out that held all those who were in tune sort of in that radiant picture. In fact, at one point um, in the book that Sarah Cryer wrote about Ananda, which was called Life in the Community or Reflections on Community or something like that. And it was a, she did a lot of interviews with people who'd been um, more, more or less in the founding generation. And one individual, actually two individuals, said the same thing. They made some, intending it to be humorous, uh, comments about Swamiji giving them some tremendous assignment and then just sort of abandoning them to do it. And meaning that he left them enormously on their own to figure out how to do it. Uh, David and I have commented that in the years that we were here, it's been 20, more than 20 years now, and I'm not sure if this is still true, but I can't really think why it isn't, that only twice did Swami ever give us very specific uh, um, direction. Once was before we had the community, we were going to close the ashram house and somehow just sort of live together and, you know, live near each other, but we were going to give up the ashram and he called us the night before we were going to make that decision and he said he thought that wasn't fair to the people living in the ashram house. And he named a couple of names specifically of people who would not 
farewell in the plan that we had. He thought that was a bad idea. That was like in 1987. And then uh, not too many years later, we thought someone was going to give us a a retreat in Santa Cruz. It turned out they wanted to sell us a retreat in Santa Cruz, which was very, very different. In fact, what they really wanted us was to support them to keep the retreat, but in the original proposal looked like a gift. So we were extremely pleased about the idea of having a local retreat. Um, And we were telling Swamiji about it. At that time, the expanding light was just barely surviving and struggling to make it at all. And Swami rightly perceived that if we set up an Ananda retreat in the Bay Area, it was not going to have a very positive effect on the expanding light. And Swami said that he thought, having a retreat in the Bay Area at that time, that we needed that about as much as we needed a hole in the head, is how he put it. (laughs) I responded by saying to David, I'm picking up intuitively that he doesn't favor this plan. (laughs) Especially when, of course, we found out we had to buy it. I mean, the whole thing. Years, a few, not too many years later, he called and said, I think the expanding light is doing really well now. If you want to look for a retreat, go ahead. That was, that was just before the Y2K, because he thought it would be beneficial for us to have land a little farther out of the city, so he was advocating it. So far, God hasn't cooperated with it, but anyway, that was the plan. But in that sense, all I'm saying is, even though we, were, we are and have been in touch with Swamiji, you know, usually you know, several times a week, even to this day. Um, he just never gave us any specific instruction. In fact, you know, months go by, we never even talk about what we're actually doing. And so in that book, several people had, had commented, meaning it humorously. A lot of times, um, wrong statement gets started just because it gets a rise out of the audience and you sort of, you kind of roll along. Swami, in fact, says a lot of the myths and stories get started, he's sure, by storytellers, noticing what gets a good laugh and then just sort of embellishing that point. Pretty soon you've just taken it way far from the truth. But when Swami read that, he called up both of those individuals and he said, I never abandoned you, just like that. He said, my consciousness was always with you. He was very emphatic about it and he insisted that they re- that the book be changed. And it wasn't merely that he felt insulted He felt like it was a profound untruth and it therefore wasn't allowed to stand. And much later when he wrote, let's see, it's probably, it's either a place called Ananda, it's probably in a place called Ananda, when he talks about how he built Ananda and his leadership. He talks about how he's never imposed his ideas on anyone, but he has always projected his ideas out into the ether, so to speak, or toward individuals, and allowed them to pick them up if they wanted to. And he articulated that, you know, in the 90s. He never said it earlier. But I certainly have experienced, since we've lived here, to a profound degree, that I have a sense of not acting a lot of times. Not, I act on the inspirations that come to me, but I have a very clear sense that those inspirations are coming from him and not from me, if you know what I mean. When we founded the community and we were dedicating it, I just became intensely aware of the fact that we had been instruments for his vision. Which, of course, he's an instrument for Master's vision, and the vision he projects to us is Master's vision. Why should we be surprised? Now, in all of that, many years ago, again, in the early 70s, when I was first living at Ananda Village and getting to know Swami Kriyananda, and those were the years, I think, when I worked with him and saw him every day. And 
I had taken the Self-Realization Fellowship lessons because I met Swami in 1960, the very end of 69, and there was a little more than a year before I actually made it to the village. I had karmic circumstances that didn't allow me to leave the next morning, which is what I would have done otherwise. But uh, So I took SRF lessons and uh, you know, studied them for a while. After I got to Ananda and things went on and I got more and more impoverished, it occurred to me that this is one place I could save money, especially since I was letting them pile up and not reading them because they seemed a little redundant in the circumstances. Um, but I began to become intensely aware of the fact that, of course, we were really living, we were really living in a deeply dedicated ashram style. We were very isolated. And I was in daily contact with Swami and I was in daily contact with all these other great devotees and was outside of the world. I mean, there was a lot of things that were very extraordinary about that time. But somehow or another, I said to Swamiji, how can anybody all by themselves in Nebraska just getting SRF lessons in the mail, I said, how can they make any spiritual progress? Because I had lived by myself receiving SRF lessons and it just didn't even touch what was happening, you know? And his answer was very interesting. He said, they don't. He said, they don't make much progress. But as soon as they want more, they draw more to them. And that was really the real answer, which as soon as their longing becomes greater, then that just that very distant impersonal contact can meet, then they draw to themselves some greater opportunity. And that there is this completely automatic relationship between the amount of inspiration we desire and the amount of inspiration that we receive. Now, don't think that that happens in an instant, or don't think that that happens just because we have a casual thought. A lot of times we have to face really tough tests in that respect. Swamiji mentions in the path when he first came to Encinitas and Sister Gyanamata answered the door and told him that he would have to wait, take all the lessons and wait four years before he could um, really even be considered and uh, that Master wasn't there and you know all these different things that were obstacles in his way. And later he found out that from the time Sister Gyanamata first found out about Master, to the time she was able to enter the ashram because she was married and she had to raise a son. A great many years passed. And uh, Swamiji thought in retrospect that, you know, given what she had had to face, the mere prospect of a slight delay, you know, that wasn't even happening yet would not seem like much of a test to her, even though it seemed like a huge test to Swamiji at the time. So it's not as if God tosses the pearl of great price in front of anyone who just casually wonders what it looks like. So there's often another cycle we have to go through. But the fact of the matter is, Yogananda made a very interesting statement. He said, whether your energy goes inward and upward toward God or dissipates outwardly into the world depends primarily on the company you keep. He said that to the monks, one of the monks. It's a very strong statement. I remember when I was living in San Francisco without really any spiritual support. And I read Yogananda's statement, environment is stronger than willpower. I remember feeling quite resentful of that because I was quite in that thought form, which Swamiji speaks about in this book this time, of this thought that, well, this is an inward path and we're all in this by ourselves. And therefore, not only 
you know, can I do it alone? But it's better to do it alone. I mean, why would I want any help from anyone? And it's very easy to, to take that thought and imagine that that's the strong right thought. Because there's a certain amount of sort of inherent human logic that makes you think that way. Isn't that so? And it's... Um, Oh, there's that, that popular phrase, it's counterintuitive. It's, it's something that we have, um, the truth is different than that. The truth is extremely different from that. The truth is that uh, the way Swami explains it in this book, which is very important to understand, thoughts are universal, they're not individual. We imagine that we are the origin point of the ideas we have, and, and merely because we declare ourselves to be, or even keep ourselves aloof from very much interaction with people, the fact of the matter is we live in a sea of influences. And Swamiji explains in this book, he explains at great length about the power of magnetism, and that magnetism is an actual force that's generated by people's thoughts and actions and consciousness. And if you live anywhere, on the, anywhere in creation actually, Thoughts and actions and consciousness are all around us. I recall when I was in my early teens, I mean like 13, 14 years old, and I was beginning to um, become conscious of the... Well, I was actually much earlier than that. I mean, from when I was born, I was conscious of the desire to self-define. But I recall specifically when I got into my teenage years and began to sort of get all that pressure on you that young girls get, you know, to dress in certain ways and to look in certain ways and to be certain ways. And toward the end, about 15 was when I really came into my own. And I remember being so resentful of the fact, I didn't know about second-hand stores in that, those days, that even if I wanted to, I couldn't dress out of fashion. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That even what was available to us was determined by somebody else's consciousness. When I was 16, I took a I was given this job uh, in a local department store. They, it was kind of all gussied up. They took a couple of kids from every high school and they called us young careerists and they put us in little uniforms and they um, you know, sort of trained us to work in the retail store. But it was really just a job in a, in a department store. Like, it was like Macy's. Um, and I, you know, I was pretty uh, articulate, which always made a good impression. And so they gave, they liked me, and they put me in what, what was considered to be the plum assignment, which was the, the um, junior girls' clothing department. And I was such a bomb in that department that I began to get a really a bad reputation throughout the whole store because there was just these cheesy, arbitrarily determined, mostly ugly fashions that these young teenagers, my contemporaries, were coming in and going gaga over and paying all this money for. And I just could not, in any sincerity, either be enthusiastic about their, their existence or about anybody buying them. So I just was a total bomb. And they were really didn't know what to do with me. And then this, uh, they transferred me into sheets and towels, and all of a sudden I did fine. You know, because sheets and towels is something that people actually need. <laughs> I could sell them with full commitment instead of all this cheesy, cheap stuff. Um, but it was, it was that realization of how um, we're just all swept up in this. I mean, of course, the women's fashion, especially the teen fashion industry, is an extreme example. But, you know, it, it does illustrate the point. 
the most amazing thing to me since then, I realize, and I joke with my women friends, when the fashions first come out, we always know they're ugly. Right at the beginning, we know they're ugly. Then we live with them for a while. And then gradually we think they're not so bad. And then at a certain point, we think they're attractive. It almost always happens. When they started selling women these huge, big shoes, I mean, I knew they were ugly for a long time. And then I found myself one day picking up a pair and thinking, these are nice. <laughs> and sort of almost at the moment that I heard them, I put them down, you know, like... <laughs> Because you just grow accustomed to it. The thought form grows. You see them around other people. Well, that's a very small thing. But you know all the values that we think are our own values. Very, very rarely is a person actually in the midst of normal life able to self-determine. Swamiji comments that traveling as much as he has around the world, he can usually pick out a person's nationality before he hears their voice or their accent. And when he first said that, when, you know, before I'd ever traveled in the world, I just couldn't believe it. Now that I've traveled, I, I know what he means. I'm not as good at it as he is. But you can just look over and, oh, there are the Germans. And when you hear them speak, they're German. You can pick out the French. You can pick out the English. It's not even the physiognomy. It's just, it's the national character. And then Swamiji says, and then every once in a while, you just meet someone who has no relationship to where they were born. They're just totally themselves, and they just move through life according to their own reality. But we, we must understand that it is not a question of whether or not we will be influenced. And, and on the deepest level, we really need to embrace that thought and be, be self-honest enough to really observe the fact of how much of our reality is, is picked up by outside influences and realize that the choice we have is not whether or not we're going to be solitary, but what we are going to allow to influence us. And then on the other side of it, appreciate the power of magnetism, which is not a thought. It's not a question of somebody presenting to you or persuading you by parading those shoes around enough that they're attractive, that there's some other reality going on, which is metaphysics. It is simply this fact that what we think and what we feel is to a very large extent the result of magnetism. And that magnetism directs our energy either upward toward inspiration or downward away from inspiration, upward toward an embracing of spirit or outward and downward toward an embracing of the world. And a great deal of it happens not by the power of reason at all, but just simply by the flows of energy that we're involved in. Swamiji uses the most negative example of how people can get caught up in a mob, in a negative mob, and then do things that they have no idea why they've done them. I'm sure many of you have read um, that book about the massacres in Rwanda. The woman wrote that book, Left to Tell. Um, and she describes how all these otherwise quite civilized and refined people became mass murderers just completely went out of their minds for three or four months or however long that went on. Just complete insanity. People that they'd lived near and so on, that this just this force of evil magnetism just swept through, not just uh, through human means, but certainly from dark astral entities and, and just massacred. Massacred, what, hundreds of thousands, millions of people? And it, 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 her story is so strange because it was just the people they knew who did it. And, and how these things happened during the partition 
of India right after independence and right before. You know, neighbors who'd lived together for generations suddenly saw each other as enemies. These thoughts sweep over them. And now we've just gone through the Easter season and we talk about Jesus walking into Jerusalem and everybody proclaiming him as the king, you know. Occasionally the positive force can also come. But the fact of the matter is, we all have experience being places where the vibrations, for example, or the thought forms of other people, or being with someone and having them just sort of persuade us of certain points of view that later we realize were not our feelings at all. So what the Indian scriptures talk about, and they talk about the word is satsanga. Sangha means fellowship, and the word sat means truth in this context, or spirit. And satsanga is to keep, it, it, it usually means to keep the fellowship, the company of other truth seekers. But what it really and deeply, genuinely means is to be in the company of truth and to always keep that thought there. So there is this reality to the spiritual life that once we ourselves begin to become open to it, if we're really sincere about it, it's not a question of just uh, doing this because we ought to do it. I've often spoken to people, for example, when the question used to come up when you would take want to take the Kriya, and people would say, well, do I have to take the 14 steps before I can take Kriya initiation? And I said, well, that's really an odd way to put the question. Because the question is, if you want Kriya initiation, do you want to do everything you can to make that, you know, to dive, dive into that teaching? So it's not a question of whether you have to take the 14 steps. It's like, don't you want to take that, what's now called the Raja Yoga course, the art and science of Raja Yoga? Don't you want to take that course? Don't you want to embrace as much of this as you can possibly embrace? Why would we be approaching this from the point of view of how little can I do and still get what I want? The idea is that we really want to move into this. And so on the spiritual path, there just comes this point where it's not a question of, of being told that we ought to. It's being a fact of our own experience, which is having the desire to really understand this as deeply as we can. And then the principles really come into play. That it's just, um, it's just not possible given the strong currents of maya that are around us, to really hold the, the, the dynamism towards spirituality that we want unless we constantly immerse ourselves in the magnetism of what we're trying to, trying to obtain. And this is just a fact that as much as people would like it not to be true, it's just a truth. When, when I... Again, when, uh, through the years working with people here, when, when I teach the Meditation One class, for example, which I used to teach a lot, when I get toward the end of the class series, the last class, and everybody's totally enthusiastic about learning to meditate, I would give a class on why people stop meditating. Because so many people who start meditating don't keep on meditating. And I would list out a number of reasons, and one of them is because you don't continually come back into the company of people who meditate. And basically the impetus for what you're doing, it gradually becomes entirely self-generated and the great thought form of restlessness and why meditate, which is all around you, will gradually take you over again. And so when people take Kriya and become disciples and we'll speak to them about, well, perhaps you should become a member of Ananda, perhaps you should give uh, financial support to Ananda, perhaps you should regularly attend Sunday services, people will say things back to us like, do I have to? You know, 
Do I have to in order to get Kriya? Do I have to in order to be a disciple? No, of course not. You can be any kind of a disciple you want to be. But haven't you noticed that unless you keep your energy fresh and newly inspired, that after a while you run out of steam? You know, one of the things I know that has kept our Sangha very strong here is that Sunday service is very strong and that most people who are serious just come. They don't think about not coming. And it's always a sign to me when people stop coming, stop coming to classes, stop coming to meditation, stop coming to Sunday service, that it's just a matter of time if they even notice where they're going to come to me and talk to me about how their spiritual life doesn't seem to be working so well anymore. Duh! You know, it's like, what kind of company are you keeping and how did you ever imagine that you would be able all by yourself to generate the magnetism to keep you moving forward? You know, we have to have a lot of respect for the power of delusion to, to, to eat us up again. Then there's a whole other side to it, which is, this is a very subtle vibration we're trying to grasp. And it isn't enough just to have all the ideas straight, because how those ideas actually apply, even much more profoundly, how are they lived? You know, we can look at the examples of the saints. I mean, I, I, my own spiritual life, when I first became interested in the concept of self-realization, I was 19 years old, I became totally convinced almost instantly, just from scars. you know, it just, this was it. This is it. This is what I was looking for. But I was so bewildered, just completely confused, as to how to go from being a, you know, just a regular young person living in the Bay Area to actually kind of get that life and make it really real. And I, I look back and the, the entire reality was simply I didn't have any satsang. I was still just all by myself. So I'd get up in the morning and I'd have this strong desire to meditate or to live my life in a different way, but there was just no vibratory force around me. I remember, I remember very graphically, I worked very hard to create it, and I vividly remember reading the Ramayana. I started, I started, I started reading books. I started reading books. First I read, I read a little philosophy, then I almost immediately started reading books about saints or about heroic persons because I wanted to know, in retrospect, I wanted to know how it was lived. I also read the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, great big versions of them at that time. I read the 1,500-page Valmiki version of the Ramayana. I had a job in downtown San Francisco, and I lived out on Geary, and I took the express bus back and forth. And I read the Ramayana on the bus, going and coming. And I, I just got so um, in, immersed in the story that first, especially when Sita was in the hands of the demon Ravanan, Everything was looking so bleak for the good guys. And I looked up and I saw all the people on the bus were just going about their lives just as if everything was just fine. They didn't seem to have any concept that Sita was in the hands of the demon. And it was just like such a complete disconnect. And then I began to have this thought. Well, actually, this came a little bit later after I visited Ananda and found out about chanting and about how Groups of devotees together could make such wonderful energy. And I was still for a time riding that bus back and forth. And I just had this wild thought. What if I just started chanting and singing? This is, I, don't, I guess the Hare Krishnas weren't part of the scene yet. Otherwise I would have thought of it like that. I thought, would everybody just merrily join in with me, you know, like an operetta? And I had this, I had this sense that they wouldn't. 
I had this sense that they would distance themselves from me as a lunatic. But it was also, it was such a clear feeling of where their magnetism was and where mine was trying to go during that brief period of time when I lived in San Francisco and would visit Ananda Village. I would come down that road and I, I just remember first you come down from the hills and you hit Sacramento. And, and it's, it's palpable. You feel that, that consciousness of Sacramento, then you come all the way down and you hit the bridge, the Bay Bridge, and you feel that. And it's like you're, you're just walking back into this cocoon of uh, materialistic thinking. You know, now, of course, we have all of this. So even in the midst of it, we still live in this middle, this, this vibration. But if, if one is honest, one realizes that one's vibration goes down. That's all there is to it. Your vibration goes down, your standards go down, and you gradually begin to think that you're pretty hot stuff because you're not as gross as the people around you. I don't mean to be unkind. And by gross, I mean that you have a spiritual thought in your mind. And you're not just living for sports and television and food and money. But without good company, without the real dynamic example of people who have really dedicated yourself, themselves to this path, you don't have the right measuring stick. Because you can be better than the worst, but that's not really what we're seeking. And then time passes and gradually even that energy dies. How many people start the spiritual path and how few actually finish? And good company and the example of those who've been on the path longer than you are the real key to it. Now, Swamiji then makes a very long and an extremely interesting point about the absolute necessity to be one-pointed in your concentration and this desire that people have. And he, 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 he explains it so perfectly that people imagine, and he's, very, he's actually rather harsh about it, but nonetheless he, he speaks the truth, that people imagine that because all paths are one, therefore you can follow all paths at the same time. And he even actually really emphatically says that this is, in many cases, and I, I mean, he's the one who states it, but I've seen it to be true, In many cases, it's really an excuse so that you don't have to follow any path. Because as long as you can follow all paths, you never are subject to any any, um, disciplining force. Because you wander here and you take a little of what you... it's It's just a matter of whim and preference from start to finish. I go here and I like that. I like the music here. I like the chanting over here. I like the temple over here. I like the speaker over there. I like the dancing in this place. And so it's all just, I like this. I like that. I like this. And every time inspiration wanes a little bit, I just go and do something else. And it's never the, 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 the clarifying pressure of really having to generate for yourself the discipline and the commitment to go deep enough into one vibration to actually change yourself. I mean, this is not just a theory. Just look around. You know, it, there, you, don't, you don't see really great shining lights among dilettantes or, or people who are too eclectic. You know, you only see that power in people who have really found a path and followed it. And Swamiji talks... It's not merely a question of getting spiritual indigestion or having so many different techniques that contradict each other. He said there's a far more subtle point that can not, as he puts it, be entirely articulated. But this, this power that emanates through specific channels has a very specific vibration. 
And this is the thing that really makes, that the, separates the wheat from the chaff on the spiritual path, is the willingness to really give yourself to that attunement. I recall in when I was early on in the 70s, I used to wear a mala, and I think I had someone make it for me. But I had a little um, a medallion that had a picture of Master on one side and a picture of Ananda Moima on the other side. I had a great affection for her, and I used to wear it all the time. But in a very odd way, I began to feel demagnetized by that picture of Ananda Moima. I mean, it would be hard to imagine. She was a great soul. She was Swami's spiritual mother in many ways. Master praised her so much. But Master was my guru. Swami was my teacher. Ananda is my path. And that the presence, just even, I, I touch it because I used to hang about here, just the presence of her beautiful face, as spiritual as a face could be, was subtly diluting what I was trying to do. And I became aware at that time of just how extremely delicate. Now, I think now I might not feel that way because my own capacity um, to, to maintain my own magnetism in the midst of ex- other forces is much stronger than it was. But I don't know. I don't wear her picture. I never put it back on again. I gave it to someone else and very happily gave it away. But it was, it was astonishing to me that that was so. I had another experience much more recently. There was this book, um, uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich, and she was a Catholic uh, nun who had all these visions of the life of Jesus. I have to say Swamiji was not particularly fond, impressed by those books, even though I love them. In fact, I think I gave them to him, thinking they were just fabulous. And I read them all the way through, and it gave me all this interesting information because she just would have these visions and she would just go back to the life of Jesus and walk down the street with him and I mean I I really loved those books and I was I went into seclusion once just before Easter and I took them with me and I was up at Ananda village I was in Swami's old dome and I was before Easter and I'd already read them through once and I thought oh I'll read these and it'll really get me ready for Easter and I sat there and I tried to read them and I guess because everything was so clarified, this was, before, this was before Swami had rejected them, I think, but maybe not, maybe it was after. Um, everything was so clear that I put those books in front of me and I could feel, and it wasn't even so much that they were right or wrong, I could just feel they had a very different vibration and that it was not going to help me on my spiritual path to read those books. So I just put them away. I still own them, but I haven't opened them again. Because the, 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 something very subtle, it was just a wholly different path than ours, even though you can say, well, it's about Jesus, and they were true this way. And so many, you know, People will always say that the teaching is just like Master's teachings, but it's not Master's teachings. And it's not that it's conceptually wrong. And I'm talking about our path, because I'm talking in our temple and I'm talking to people who are mostly disciples, but it's whatever path you're on. It's not like you have to follow this path, but whatever path you follow, you have to actually follow it. You can't just half follow it and we can't just keep being eclectic. Oh, I feel a little bored. I'll go find something else to inspire me. 
Master said, you know, with the stories of Krishna, you have to be really careful because some of them have really been distorted. With the lives of the saints, the phrase he used, only read those that are in our line. He mentioned St. Francis and St. Teresa of Avila and he didn't really mention any others. Swami's been, we've asked Swami at other times to tell us what he meant. He said, well, he must have meant those who had mystical, deep mystical communion with God and didn't merely fulfill the church's definition of what it was to be a saint, weren't merely self-sacrificing and serviceful, but actually had deep inner communion with God. But you can also tell once you become sensitive just a little bit by holding it in your hand and looking at it. You know, just what kind of magnetism does this have? And it also it's like, do we even need to? Sometimes we entertain ourselves. I like light inspirational reading. But it has to be moving us in the same direction for one reason and one reason only. Otherwise, we ourselves lose um, the zeal and the capacity to go forward. Because don't misunderstand, life is um, very challenging. You know, just very challenging. And it wears you down. Everybody finds that. It, it just wears you down. We lose, we have all the physical energy and the vitality and the optimism of youth, but then gradually we get older and our bodies just don't regenerate in quite that same way and our minds don't bounce back quite so easily. And we have to really think, what kind of influences am I taking in? And also there's the fact that there's this long, the spiritual path is long. If you want to be a lifelong devotee, it's not, it's not something that just you know comes and goes and bingo, you've got samadhi. And, and you have to build the right habits in. And that's where the habit of attunement, Master, in one of the readings that we have on our Sundays, you know, there's a whole reading about attunement, and Swamiji says that in public, Master talked about many different things, but in private, he talked only about attunement. Because if you match your vibration to the Guru's vibration, and if you seek out those influences that strengthen that vibration in you, then everything else follows from that. Because think of it, if you're strongly in that vibration, then every action that is dissonant with that, whether it's thought or, or a deed you're going to do or a sense of the right direction, if you're not strongly in that vibration, you have no point of comparison. The whole, for me, when I got into Ananda, when I met Swamiji, when I really entered into this path, what it provided for me and has provided ever since was a point of comparison, a, a way to tell what it is that I was trying to actually do. And of course, Swami Kriyananda, as an example of the spiritual path, has pre presented the point of comparison. And, you know, I talk about him continuously. And when people ask, you know, is this the right way to go or is that the right way to go? You know, what should we think about this? I always answer. I mean, as much as I possibly can by telling you what Swami said or what Swami did. Because I feel myself, how else would I know? Otherwise, it's if it feels good to me, if it makes sense to me, what good is that? Who am I? You know, none of us are anything except insofar as we're in tune. And if we have someone in our lives who's very in tune, why would we use anything else as a reference point? You know, it just seems really dangerous to me. And if we have each other, you know, to be reflecting back to us. What I've observed over the years of Ananda is that it's... The only word I can think of is that, and it's, it's the way I've explained it to people, there's a magnetic honesty to it. 
you know, to this ashram in all its forms, even in all its iterations, you know, spread out and spread out. Not every person is perfect. Not every decision is accurate. Not every action is fair. Not every person is nice. But in the end of the whole thing is that it all comes out exactly as it's supposed to. Because there's a fundamental, you know, unifying magnetism which comes from Master through Swami to all of us. And if we commit ourselves to that ideal, which is the ideal of being in tune, how does this work? What am I supposed to do? That's why Swamiji, he gets very subtle. Swamiji has often said he, he, doesn't, he wants us to build creatively on what he has done rather than thinking that we have to go out and create everything else anew. That's why we always try to pull his music in. That's why we try to do things in the spirit in which he has done them. Because as long as we're doing that, we'll enhance our vibration. And again, it's very subtle. You know, sometimes people do creative things in our community here. You know, we're not, um, we're not afraid to try things. Somebody was asking me once about wanting to write music or perform music. And I said, well, I think that'd be a lovely thing for you to try to do. But if you're going to do it, and he was also working with Swami's music too, you're going to have to be ready to be corrected. Because if you want to do something that's both creative and in tune, and you're going to try to chart uncharted waters, then you're going to have to allow people to to guide you which way you're going to go. If you just want to be in tune with your own energy, that's not hard to do. Some individual once was talking about trying to justify a very wrong course of action. His justification for it was that it felt so harmonious within him. I said to Swamiji later, I said, well, that's because he's the only one in there, you know? <laughs> so of course he feels harmonious. He feels completely harmonious within himself because he's excluded all other influences. And that doesn't mean anything. It's easy to be in tune with your own ego. You know, it didn't matter what words he was using. The fact of the matter was, he was attempting to attune himself only to the consciousness he already had. Do you understand? It's a very long and serious project. So Swamiji talks here about, in this chapter, about just the absolute vital importance of satsang and the vital importance about, of concentrated loyalty to one vibration. Now, I, I want to just put the slight caveat on that. You have to be sincere. You can't force yourself because God told you, you know, someone told you that you were going to go to hell unless you followed this church. That's not right. Because the other side of it, he started with Gandhi, remember? You have to have the inner inspiration and then you have to have absolutely res- absolute respect for other people to follow according to their own inspiration. And sometimes it takes people a long time to come to their own experience of why they want to be in tune. So we also have to allow people to flow according to their own rhythm But I never feel like it's necessary to tell people an untruth. To just say, oh, sure, sure, go here, there, and everywhere, and it'll all be fine for you. Because it's not true. It's not fair. Eventually, sooner or later, you have to make a deep commitment. And, And Swamiji says in here, and it's a very important point, don't worry about whether or not you've made the absolute right choice. Don't worry about this. He said, just find something that's true and devote yourself to it. Then, I, I mean, I know when I first came to Ananda, even though I, what was crystal clear to me was that I needed to be where Swami was, this whole business of Yogananda was a little bit more obscure to me. But Swami Kriyananda was perfectly clear to me. 
And at the same time, until that point in my life, I had been guided by Sri Ramakrishna, and I knew that. So I was a little confused between Ramakrishna, Yogananda. Kriyananda was a clear-cut choice. Ananda was a clear-cut choice. But when I sort of stood back, I thought, how could I possibly tell? You know, like, I'm trying to talk about these great masters and what I'm supposed to do. I mean, in in retrospect, it's all self-evident. But it really wasn't to me, because... I had, uh, Ramakrishna had really taken care of me, and I felt that, and, and I felt, uh, even though I'd never taken any initiations or anything like that, but I, I, he'd, he'd taken care of me, and there was a great um, sense of relationship there. And now all of a sudden, Kriyananda had come into my life, and Kriyananda was guided by Yogananda, and if I was going to follow Kriyananda, that would take me to Yogananda, but what about Ramakrishna? And then I thought to myself, this is absurd. I said, I'm talking about great masters, like they're not going to compete. This is not like a quota system, or they're like trying to win the most numbers of disciples. It's just like whatever is right is going to be right. And I literally, I put the entire question out of my head. It was like, I know what's benefiting me now, This, and I need to do it, because the reason I can't understand of consciousness, I can't just sit on eat for something to develop my intuition, to clarify I'm all, know what's right, and about and I woke up, of course I was master's, you know, it was just a thing that was in front of everything else, is telling people, you know, whatever it is, then give your money, attention, give us a patient, come back, if you see inspiration, you have to make the relationship reciprocal in some way, otherwise, it's just, it's all a taking relationship, and you won't really grow, that's why, among many reasons, why, find why, when you find your spiritual path, you should tithe to it. Because you've got to make that relationship reciprocal in some way. And what can you honestly do for the guru? I mean, if master was in the body and we could wash his clothes or cook his meals or even take him a mango every now and then, that would be a nice thing to do. But really, is that sufficient? Only, you know, a tiny number of disciples ever actually do guru seva directly to the guru. It's just only, even, even when the master is living, only a tiny number of people can do that. What you have to give to is you have to give to that to which he has given himself. That's how you give back to master. I mean, what does master need? He needs absolutely nothing. He accepts our service. The guru will accept your service because it's good for the disciple. But the guru has committed himself to this particular, I mean, he's from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God. He's taken on this task. And it's it's that which he is trying to do that we must stand behind him to do. And of course, all spiritual works need money. And of course, the last thing that most people want to give is their money. Right? And that's where the tithing comes in. As I always try to touch this subject whenever I have a chance. Because it is that way of making that relationship reciprocal. Because then you actually really give something that takes something of you to give. That's why it's more than just, oh, I have a little extra money, I'll give it. Oh, I think I can afford $25 a month. No, the tithing is the way to go. Because then you have said that a portion of my life, as much as you know, that's what the biblical injunction has always been, if you can do more than the 10% recommended, that's great. But at least that. Because that's what makes, that's, you're keeping the right company then, and it's a reciprocal relationship. You give that 10% back to that which inspires you, you see?
and then you've made that relationship dynamic, you're keeping that inner company and you're giving back to it. So, any comments or thoughts about any of that? I feel that's all so passionately. I have such a hard time not coming across like a fanatic sometime on that point. Because I see people who come here, they draw a great deal from it, they're very sincere, and then they'll go here, there, and everywhere. Or they'll tell me, well, I'm not a joiner. I, I, I don't believe in spiritual organizations. And it just breaks my heart. Not for my sake, you know, because we have what we have, we know, but for theirs. I think, like, well, how, do, how do you expect ever to grow without really giving back, without commitment, and without good company? This, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about this chapter in this book, about what a passionate statement it is for that. Well, any thoughts or questions on that? I don't remember who told me, but I, I found a, uh, or heard a wonderful illustration of the point you were making, and it came back to me as you were talking, uh-huh. and talking about the spiritual dilettante. Uh-huh. It's like someone who's digging a well. Uh-huh. And they dig a little bit over here, yeah. dig a little bit over there, dig a little bit over there. Well, once you find the spot to dig, you have to go down a ways before yeah. you reach the water. Water, exactly. And, yeah. oh. You know, that sort of put it together. It was a a simple image, but it was very useful for me, and so I just wanted to mention that. You know, the other part of that, about going deep and being in tune, is, let me think how to say it. You have to make a commitment to keeping yourself inspired and not try to get inspiration by making changes. There was a period of time in Ananda's history when we lost a lot of people who had been there for, not a lot, but a few, for 20, 25 years. It's sort of hard to imagine how you can change paths after so long. But it was interesting that like about two decades, which is not a, you know, some of you are past the two decade mark, but not all of you. But about after about 20 or 25 years, the quality of your spiritual life, you, you kind of reach a watershed point where you, where you either begin to dry up <laughs> or you really have to push harder to keep your inspiration alive. And, and even though I was never even remotely tempted to seek another source of inspiration, I could see how vulnerable a person would be at that point to a new source of inspiration. Because some, something that's flashy and interesting, you get to just start, it's like changing spouses. You know, it's like you, you get a little bored with the one you have, and so you get to start over with a new one and it takes you a while to find out that it's a lot like the old one. (laughs) But it just is a question of the kind of energy you're putting into it, not necessarily the kind of energy that's coming back. And so the, the process of attunement also keeps your spiritual life ever fresh because attunement is the power of magnetism flowing into you. And Swami, I know there was one more point, very good point Swami made in this. You can you can create a sense of being inspired out of the expectation of being inspired or by just generating that enthusiasm within yourself. But gradually, if that inspiration isn't really, doesn't actually have a source, it'll begin to dry up for you. But if, you, if you're with a true teacher, with, with true magnetic energy, then it will never dry up. It will always keep rejuvenating you. And so he, uh, 
and if you're genuinely receptive, all of those things. So that's one of the factors. And, you know, I don't mean to make it a person paranoid because it's also not that difficult. I mean, being in tune is largely a matter of recognizing that it's what you want and then seeking out the company that can help you. I remember one man who came to Ananda in the relatively early years and he was, he was just such a model devotee. He just immediately looked around and he saw those people who inspired him and then he took every single opportunity he could find to be in their company. And just, just did that. And you just watched his spiritual life just, you know, skyrocket. And he said, it, to him it just seemed so self-evident. What else would you do? You know, that's of course how you would relate because you, you, you would see, and, and what he says in here, one of the ways you can tell a true teacher is by the quality of his disciples. And so he looked around and he saw the people that he wanted to be like. And so he immediately just went and stood next to them whenever he had a chance. And uh, it, was, it was a very um, deep and beautiful thought. It's, it's like the, the quality of the people at Ananda is just absolutely stunning. When we used to live at Ananda Village, stunningly wonderful. When we used to live at Ananda Village and never didn't have cars and individually and every so often you have to take a trip to the Bay Area and you'd get a ride with somebody. And I always was just so excited when I'd end up in a car with somebody, you know, four hours in a car with people I didn't know because I knew at the end of them I would just be so impressed by how wonderful they were because there just was nobody in the ashram that wasn't wonderful and still true. You know, just the, the deep sincerity of the people on this path and we can just draw so much from each other. Anyway, so now going on. Um, Swamiji then, the next chapter, which he talks about, is he really tries to explain to us what an avatar really is. And what he's really trying to correct here, above all things, is just that simple understanding. You know, it's it's such a mysterious thought of, of who these great masters are and what they really bring to us. On, I guess it was on Easter Sunday, it was one of the, the days that I had to speak over this r- recent weekend, that I commented about the only reason that we don't really get this is because we're in a minority at this point on this planet and this point in this country. There's so much false teaching, wrong teaching that's been perpetrated and wrong thoughts about what we ought to be doing on this planet because it's just Kali Yuga coming up to Dwapara and it's just institutional religion now giving way to... to Uh, self-realization, basically, that we just have all these misconceptions we're trying to correct. And so one of those misconceptions, which Swami is really touching here, is trying to get the true um, revelation, Hindu revelation, the way of awakening, about what a guru is and where he comes from. And they they tell us this thought over and over again, that the self-realized master is just the end result of the exact process and path that we're on right now. It's just almost impossible to comprehend that sometimes, isn't it? When you think of the courage of Jesus, when you think of the power of Master, when you think of the greatness of the Buddha, and just realize that we are going to walk right down that same road and that they have actually stood in the same shoes that we're standing in. That all of the delusions that we've been subject to, all of the failures that we've had, all the little desires, all the intense fears, that every self-realized Master has faced every one of those. And that their tremendous compassion and their ability to help us is not some 
you know, low, like I come from the mountaintop to help you. It's just looking back and, and been there, done that. <laughs> you know, just really exactly that. When we, when we stand here and you see someone struggling with something that you can just see through, like I was saying, when I see people who want to be on this spiritual path but have set up this construct around them that doesn't allow them to really let it into them, well, the only reason I feel so desirous of, of winning them through that is because I'm, I myself must have lived through it. I just feel it so deeply. I see it so clearly. The folly of it seems so transparent to me. I think I've shared with you, sometimes I have dreams in which I do really stupid things. You know, just transparently stupid. Like, you know, like, like steal money or, uh, or be terribly unkind or, or a great act of disloyalty. And in my dream, I'll just be thinking you know, oh my God, I've made such a mess of my life. And then I'll always realize, you know, either I'll wake up, but often just before I wake up, I'll realize I'm not so that stupid. This must be a dream. <laughs> you know, but the feeling of it is absolutely a past life memory. There's no question about it. Of just having done that. You know, just been caught in delusion and done something so... Uh, self-destructive, and then had to live through. You know, that's what I feel in the dream. I feel this whole road in front of me that I've set in motion, all the karma I've set in motion by that stupid action. And then, and then there's, there's a knowledge. That's what's so depressing in the dream, is this knowledge of all that I'm going to have to go through in order to expiate just this moment of lack of self-control or folly, whatever it might have been. Isn't that so? That's how the masters look at us. They just look at us and they know from their own inner reality what we've been through. Now, what we're going to have to go through and what we've been through. It's very, very important to understand that because the most important thing in our relationship with the guru is to to dissolve the distance and to really, all this business about attunement, to really allow the master into our lives. And what are the fetters that, that... the, they talk about one of them is guilt, guilt and shame, isn't it? Just this very false idea of, of sort of having to get everything together before we can present ourselves to the guru. I laughed when I was visiting my sister-in-law in Boston years ago, and all of a sudden she starts, she, she gets really busy cleaning up the house. I said, what are you doing? She said, the cleaning lady is coming tomorrow. I said... <laughs> I was so confused. Why are you cleaning up the house? She says, well, she says, it's really competitive to get a good cleaning lady. And if our house is too hard to clean, she'll quit and go to an easier job. I said, that is just the most insane thing I've ever heard. (laughs) But I always think about that, cleaning the house for the cleaning lady. And I sort of think that, you know, Master is come to purify and clean up our consciousness. And then we imagine that I have to get it all organized before I can let him in to work on it. I have to, I have, to have my thoughts together. I have to be good. I, you know, and it's just so 100% the opposite. We can just say to Master, look, you've been in this mess before. You've had these very feelings. You've been a, a, a profligate. You've been the prodigal son. You've been lazy. You've been worldly. You've been addicted. You've been all these things. You got out of it. Get me out of it. 
You know, it's just, God really likes it when we're not afraid. I know I, people, and I'll put myself in that category, spent so, have spent, spent so much time in their life hiding and protecting and trying to look good. I think I shared with you this weekend I was talking to you about with Swamiji where I went through that very long cycle with him of just trying to look good. At the end of it he said, you never fooled me. Very vivid and important words, you never fooled me. And but I mean, who do, who deceives? You see somebody putting, trying to shine you on. All they do is present, prevent you from actually relating to them. Isn't that so? They put on this fancy. I've got it all together. I don't need any help. I'm fine. Energy. And what that means simply is that they get to go out, go it alone. It's not like anybody's fooled. You just get to go it alone. So Swamiji is emphasizing in here, and he explains, you know, the metaphysics of it that that soul has gone on this long cycle. And the other thing that we have to realize is they come back because they want to help us. In my own little life, it's sort of a joke. Somebody will say, well, I would have called you, but I thought you would be too busy. I say, if nobody calls me, I have nothing to do. (laughs) You know, I'm not too busy. This is what I do. How could I possibly be too busy? This is my life. And literally, if nobody calls me, I have nothing to do. And the Master, he doesn't need to be here. He's only here. I mean, here meaning in our vibrations, what to speak of on the planet. He's only here, available to us, because that is why he was born. He was born to help us. And if we don't ask him, he has nothing to do. But even worse than that, the way Swami puts it in here, avatar, avatar means the descent spirit into form. And we have to finish that. I love the way he puts that. We have to finish that descent by drawing the the form of the avatar all the way into us. You know, the more completely we can just open ourselves and bring that consciously, visualizing Master coming right into us. It's so much fun when you meditate, you know, and you're having a little trouble, a little being a little restless. Then all of a sudden you just, I like to step inside of Master's body. I find that more comfortable than bringing him into mine. But just step inside. Just visualize one of those pictures with his big portly form and him sitting there up so strongly like that and just sit down spine to spine inside of his body and meditate with his spine. His chakras are a lot clearer than ours. You know, that kundalini energy. He doesn't have any trouble with the Kriya breath. You know, his concentration never wavers. Just be there with him. He's been where you are. He knows exactly what it feels like. He doesn't mind. To him, it's all just a passing dream anyway. And, and the more deeply we can really see their reality, and of course we have Swamiji, who's such an extraordinary example of true spirituality. And I mean, I, I said to him many, many years ago, before very many people were willing to cognize what we really had in him, I said, Swamiji, everything you do, you do because that's the way Master did it. Isn't that so? He said... Of course. And I said, and if you, don't, you know, if you don't want to do it this way, that's because that's not the way Master did it. Isn't that so? And again, he just sort of looked at me and said, of course. What else do you expect? So it, when, we, when we're in doubt, we have so many examples of him who's also lived through, even we've watched him in this life because he's not an avatar. He's, a, he's a, an ascending Master rather than a descending one, I think is fair. You know, he's finishing the life. 
and we're watching the karma sort of play itself out and the persecutions and the misunderstandings and the health and the issues and the work and all of these things, you just get right in it. We're shoulder to shoulder in this. Just as we're shoulder to shoulder with our guru bhais, the guru is shoulder to shoulder with us. You know? And it's an act, above all, it's a relationship of pure friendship. That's what Master said, the highest relationship with God and guru is one of pure friendship. I, it's very helpful. I found that when I finally really deeply cognized that, I found that so helpful. It helped, it helped me in two ways. It helped me know how to relate to Master and to Swamiji. It also helped me relate to everybody in my life. Because if I can understand friendship with someone that we have such reverence for and admiration and still understand how to be a friend. Because, well, years I, I put this little story in my book that many years ago when I when Swamiji was in relative seclusion and silence, and I got myself into some just mess, personal mess, and I really needed his help, but I didn't want to disturb him. So I just sort of bit the bullet and tried to cope. And one of my friends wrote a note or told Swamiji what was happening to me, and he, he sent for me. And he was in silence, so he, he wouldn't speak, but he sat at the typewriter, and I stood behind him, and I talked, and he typed his answers. And uh, I, he said, why didn't you tell me what was going on? I said, I didn't want to disturb you. He said, you insult my friendship. I just vividly remembered that. You insult my friendship. He said, if you would think that my convenience was more important than your welfare, he said, what kind of a friend do you think I am? And I, know I, had, I would never have thought that. I thought I was being considerate. But I actually wasn't giving him the credit of thinking that he would really care for me that much. It's been a very, that was an extremely striking and important lesson. And oftentimes, with our peers, we don't actually open or ask because we think, oh, they're too much trouble, they wouldn't want to know. But, but I've really come to appreciate, that's insulting. You should respect people enough. I often, I just think of it like this. Would I mind if somebody else asked me? And then I think, why would I think that the people I know are less generous in their spirit than I would be? Do you see? And then when you think about Master, and you think about Swamiji, and you think, of course you have to do what's appropriate. You know, you can't go, well, Swami lives in India, but you can't go knocking on his door at midnight unless you absolutely must. But nonetheless, in our hearts, we must never, not for a split second, imagine that the Guru doesn't live to liberate us. And that there's not one thing we can do that in any way touches their commitment to us. Remember when Master was scolding someone harshly, Swami tells the story, and the disciple said, well, you will forgive me, sir, won't you? And Swamiji said, Master looked positively shocked. Of course I will. And what kind of a question is that? What does your behavior have anything to do with my commitment to you? It's because of that commitment that he's working with us. If, if we could just learn that, that's the statement. If you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. 
if we really in our heart of hearts knew how completely the Master stands with us, how he has lived the life that we're living, and he's living it through us again, and he's going to walk us through every step, and he doesn't mind a bit. How does Swami put it? God doesn't mind your faults. He only minds your indifference. And your indifference meaning is your indifference to his presence in your life, your indifference to your aspiration, and even that minding it means that it breaks his heart to see that. But our faults, he's been there, he knows. doesn't make any difference. So above all things, concentrate on that. That's your attunement, you see. That's your good company. When Master said, uh, always keep the company of the saints, or always keep the company, you know, always keep good company. And the disciple said, well, what if I'm alone? And Master said, am I not always with you? You know, so good company ultimately comes down simply to that. Am I not always with you? I think I wrote in a letter to the congregation not too long ago, the interesting point I suddenly realized as he asked that as a question, am I not always with you? Because whether he is or not is the question that we have to answer. You know, Master, of course, the Master could have said, I'm always with you, but he didn't. He said, am I not always with you? It's because unless we say yes, then he can't come in. That's the good company. That's the descent of the avatar. That's the friendship, the divine friendship of complete freedom of understanding and relationship between us. So that's all I have to say for tonight. God bless you all.